Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Andrew Hill and today I'm joined by Command Sergeant Major Christopher Martinez. He is the U- U.S. Army War College's Command Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major Martinez has served in the Army since 1989, is that correct? That is true. And sir, welcome so much to the War Room Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. So I, I just want to review some highlights of your career. You joined the Army and went into the infantry branch? Yep, I... Uh saw a video at my recruiter station they said hey get back to nature and uh join the infantry and uh go airborne ranger and i really thought that that was a a neat thing little did i know that uh everything that it entailed but uh it ended up being a very good decision and you served five combat tours total is that correct yes um including a tour with the 75th ranger regiment uh the 325th airborne battalion combat team in vicenza italy and numerous other tours. Uh, you've been recognized many times throughout your career, including a Bronze Star Medal with a V device for Valor. So, sir, welcome uh, to the War Room. Thanks for joining us today. We know that you're approaching the end of, of your Army career, and we appreciate the opportunity to sit with you and, and have you reflect on your time in the Army. I'd like to start at the beginning of your Army career, back in 1989. Was that the year that you, you joined the Army? So, you know, not to be too funny about it, but what were you thinking? You know, what what led you to the Army? Well, anybody that's as old as I was would realize that back in 1989, we were just coming out of the Reagan recession. And uh, I think soldiers joined the military for one reason, but they stayed for another. And uh, I joined the military. You know, I really had this great sense of wanting to give back to the community uh, I have been very fortunate in my youth to have a lot of people from church groups to to total strangers that were able to help me along the way, and I really had this desire to give something back to my country, uh, to take this opportunity to be able to uh, serve, and you know, and I guess I really got that that sort of uh, character development because I grew up in Christian schools. So, you know, I brought that with me, you know, into the Army, and I didn't know I was going to stay for 30 years. I, I don't think anybody does. Uh, but the first enlistment was really about, you know, hey, how can I go and really give back to a lot of people that gave to me? Uh, and then once the first enlistment ended, you know, I, I, you know, I, I served in the Ranger Regiment, and it really developed me into a, a, a great appreciation for what it is to serve what is it is to be a soldier and, and more importantly you know uh how grateful i was to be a part of the armed service was there somebody that you knew or a member of your family a friend of the family who pointed you towards the army or made you think specifically of the army well both my grandfather served in world war ii uh i remember my grandfather uh he was a paratrooper in the 82nd airborne division you know and uh, he jumped in the market garden. Uh, he was injured, and he, he would tell me all about it all the time. And, uh, you know, it's something that through my youth is, you know, that, that vision of your grandfather, you know, the, part of the greatest generation that, you know, helped free Europe, uh, something that stayed with me along the way. Uh, you know, I have been very fortunate, you know, 
as a paratrooper is something that, uh, you know, when you're young, that you say, oh, wow, you know, this is pretty high speed. But uh, it's a lot more difficult than what it is. When you look back now, with the benefit of hindsight, has anything been different in your career from what, what you were expecting when you joined? Well, it goes back again that I think you go through phases of your career where, the, where your motivation changes along the way. For the first enlistment, it was about, you know, just the excitement and the adventure and, and being able to give something back. And then when you re-enlist, you know, for an NCO, that's, you know, around the four-year mark, you know, I started to have a family and started to realize that I liked what I was doing. Uh, when you go over 10 years as an NCO, you go indefinite, and then you realize, well, I'm kind of in this for the long haul. And each of those phases, your motivation kind of changes. Uh, as long as your professionalism, you know, like when you get started in a career, you may think that you may like what you're doing, but as you become more professionalized inside of your career, and you really start to love it, and you start to, you know, uh, really appreciate the leadership opportunities that you have, the responsibilities, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And uh, so as I went through my career, each one of those phases, you know, you really have to go back and reflect on what motivates you. And uh, it, the one common thread that's motivated me throughout the whole thing is just service unto others. Are there any leaders that you've known, well, known or or observed from a distance that you especially admire that, that have embodied the principles of leadership that are important to you? Well, I've had a lot of great leaders along the way that have influenced me. I've been very fortunate to, uh, you know, from growing up in a Ranger regiment, you know, I remember uh, General Grange being there. And of course, his father was also a Vietnam vet and his influence on the whole Ranger community. Uh, some of the NCOs that, that I have served with, uh, you know, I have served with uh, the Sergeant Major of the Army when he was a Brigade Command Sergeant Major. Uh, the former CENTCOM Command Sergeant Major Greca, he was my platoon sergeant. I have had these people in my lives along the way that has really, you know, challenged me to be all I could be, you know, no pun intended there, uh, that, that really, you know, I have admired along the way for their ability to strive for excellence and how anybody could strive for excellence if they just have the desire to do so. Can you remember a specific instance where one of these leaders did something that, you know, just represented that principle or embodied that principle for you, an act of a leader that sort of stood for those things? Well, I remember when I was a young team leader and I was out at a live fire range. It was late at night and we were doing the night live fire. And of course, back then, you know, your nods weren't as good as what they are today. And uh, as a team leader, you're responsible to lead the way. So I was leading my fire team and the squad was behind me. And uh, we were doing a live fire. And I remember that I had ran in front of another soldier and, and I had my squad leader, you know, come there and tell me, hey, listen, you know, you got to have situational awareness at all time. And, uh, you know, he could have fired me right then. He could have, you know, DX me and uh, say, hey, man, you're not for us. But he didn't. He took the time out to really explain to me and to give me a chance and to show me what right looked like. And I'll always remember that because, you know, as a young sergeant, you know, your first time doing something, you know, it was easy for them to say, well, you know, he's not up to the task. Well, because of that, I used that same philosophy as I became a first sergeant. I started training other soldiers was that, hey, it's human nature for people to make a mistake. And you really 
got to allow for it because people learn from mistakes and, and they learn how to become better. And you got to have compassion and empathy for people. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things that I learned from a very young age as a soldier. So if you could have a conversation with yourself in the Army, the, the young uh, soldier, Martinez, 25 years ago, so you're approaching the end of your first enlistment, knowing what you know now, is there any advice that you would give yourself? I would tell myself to read. I mean, I didn't really gain an appreciation for reading outside of what the military has you to read. Of course, there's lots all, to read. All, all, <laughs> yeah. there, there's a lot to read on your equipment. There's a lot to read on tactics and and, and operations. But, uh, you know, it wasn't until later in my career that I gained a great appreciation to 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 read out, uh, to read other things that were not Army things. And I think that that's important that uh, for you to keep a perspective on, on what else is happening in the world, and uh, uh, you know what are the the current uh, frameworks that people use for critical thinking and things like that. It wasn't until later on in my career that I really gained an appreciation for reading. So, Sergeant Major Martinez, is there a specific book that you would tell yourself to read as a young soldier? Well, one of the books that I would tell myself to read if I was to go back in time is a book called The Guardians of the Republic. And it was written by an historian. The, the first name escapes, but the last name is Fisher. And it was the only book to ever be written on the non-commissioned officer corps by an historian. And what the book basically tells you is and shows you is this evolution of the duties and responsibilities of non-commissioned officers and how over the course of time uh, those duties and responsibilities have grown. You know, I've been going to war for over 30 years, since 1989. And I can see it even in my own time about the, the, how the, the growth of the responsibilities of our soldiers and NCOs have grown, just as they also have grown on young lieutenants as we went through, you know, basic type of wars over that time period. And uh, I think it's very important to be able to, to take those lessons learned from historians and really you know, be able to help you think in time about how that growth of uh, those duties and responsibilities are, are, are changing over time. And, and they're going to continue to change in the future. Uh, it's important to read. It's important to understand history. It's important to understand how things evolved and, and to have an appreciation for that. Because I think that that allows you to be able to think strategically later on. To become a strategic thinker is that ability to think in time. In your career, how have you seen that duties and responsibilities of, of non-commissioned officers have, have changed from where they were when, when you started in the Army to today? Well, when I started in the Army, it was during the Cold War, and it was right before the Berlin Wall came down. And it was, uh, you know, everybody knew who our adversary was. It was the Russians, and everybody knew what the order of battle was, and everybody trained for a high-intensity conflict. Uh as the Berlin Wall came down and and we kind of transitioned to this this time period where we didn't know what the future held for us and nobody seen 9/11 coming along the way and then after 9/11 you've seen us you know we can dominate a war within 100 hours but what comes afterwards and it's that part that came afterwards that we kind of lost our lessons from Vietnam and and uh doing a counterinsurgency fight, and that lessons learned, you know, they kind of came back, and, and the Army had to relearn those things. And I was one of those soldiers that had to relearn those because I didn't serve in Vietnam. I didn't have any experience mm -hmm. with anybody from Vietnam. 
But uh, I had to go from training for a high-intensity conflict, which was pretty straightforward, to just doing gunnery and, and going out there and doing you know, basic tactical operations, to really you had to ha- open up your, your, your toolbox and you had to have a great appreciation for having a cultural awareness, understand what uh, your actions can have an impact at the strategic level. And that uh, you really had to have great compassion and empathy for the population. And, uh, you know, it took us a while, to, the Army a while, to be able to turn that. Even though for such a huge Army, to be able to make that turn, I think, was outstanding. And only the Army could probably do that. I mean, you're talking about over a million people that served in those wars, and we were able to turn that uh, mm-hmm. that that emphasis in, hey, listen, you have to be an ambassador for your country. You got to be more than just a soldier. It seems like throughout history, non-commissioned officers have had a huge role in retaining institutional knowledge over extended periods that, that you guys are one of the ways in which the organization holds on to some of the lessons that are learned. Because on the officer side, you have more turnover, you know, NCOs stay with the, the troops, they, they, they're the, the mechanism of transmitting those lessons to the troops in a way that officers kind of, they pretty rapidly get distance from the troops. Do, do you get the sense that today the Army is turning away from the lessons that you just described, that it learned in, in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, I think that the Army is in a, a reflection point on what is the, the needs for the future, and uh, what have we really learned from our past? I don't really think that we've learned the lessons learned from Afghanistan and Iraq yet. I don't think uh, uh, an indicator of that would be this, is that if they come out with a AAR, let's say, or lessons learned from Iraq, and all it talks about is how officers executed the war, then you know that the Army missed an opportunity to really add in the lessons from the non-commissioned officers and the soldiers. Uh, I have yet to, 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 to see the lessons learned from Iraq. I know that they are coming out, and I know that our, our, our institution is working on those, but I would like to see how much of the perspective of the non-commissioned officer is in that lessons learned. And, and I think, to go back to your point, it's important that it is, because the NCOs are the continuity from one generation to another. And to be able to hand off those lessons learned, I think, is very important. If not, we're just going to relive them again in the future. When you look back on your career now, can you tell me about what you think your your best day was in the Army? I think uh, when I became an NCO, the best day in the Army is any day that uh, we redeployed and we saw the families. You got off the bus and... You know, wherever I've been inside the country, anytime I ever redeployed, we always landed at an airport, and there was a local community that was out there, the moms and dads and everybody, and and just regular Americans that would be out there waving signs and telling you thank you. And and every single time that that happened to me, that was one of my greatest days in the Army. What was special about that for you? It reinforced the commitment that a soldier makes to serve and that there was gratitude out there for the sacrifice that we were providing. And even though we chose to to make that sacrifice, it was nice to know that there was others that appreciated that there were that were there were citizens out there that realized the role that we were playing and that uh, in any sort of society somebody has to stand watch on that wall. 
and that uh, they appreciated the soldiers that that uh, went out there and did that. And uh, when I retire, I'll be one of those old guys out there uh, waving on the troops as they come back home and telling them they did the job we're all done uh, because freedom isn't free. So building on how freedom is not free, can you tell me about your worst day in your career? Well, my worst day in my career was uh, a day in Bakuba, Iraq. It was during the surge, and uh, we were getting a lot of firefights, and we had just got done with one. And uh, I remember coming back, and uh, I had one of my soldiers come up to me and say, uh, you know, how scared he was of dying. And, uh, you know, he had this look on his face, and he was one of my standard bearers for my company. So it was very odd to me because throughout the whole deployment, he had been, you know, somebody that led the way and everything else. And I knew that it was getting bad out there for us when my standard bearer came to me and said, you know, I thought today I was going to die. And I felt so, so, you know, it touched me so much that I had went down to the operations center for my battalion. I said, hey, listen, you know, I don't want any of my soldiers going out that night. Because, you know, they're just going to re-see the IEDs again. And I was afraid that the risk would be extremely high and that one of my soldiers would would end up being hurt. And uh, sure enough, uh, a little bit before midnight, uh, one of my platoons was called out. And uh, there was a lot of sectarian violence going on and they were murdering just, you know, the Shia were just murdering any of the Sunnis that were in there. We were on one of those fault lines. Battalion commander made a decision that, hey, you know, that we there was 40 civilians out there that might be slaughtered, and they sent my platoon down that road that night. I lost that soldier that night. You know, and it's something that I'll always remember for the rest of my life, you know, because he didn't have to go out that night. You know, I was so concerned about him. Somebody, one of his other soldiers was supposed to be on that truck that night, but he said, no, I'll go. And even though, you know, all that happened during the daytime, he still went out that night, even when he didn't have to. And uh, I had to come back. I was the first one to find out. And I had to come back and tell the rest of the company. And I think that that was the hardest thing that I ever had to do. Did you have any interaction with his family after that? Well, he was married. He had just gotten married, and uh, his wife didn't really want to have anything else to do with the Army, and I don't blame her. Uh, a, a young wife really, you know, uh, she took it hard, just, you know, you would expect somebody to do. And... Uh, it's one of the things that, that are still out there for me. Even though I may retire, I still know that I have to make a trip. I have to make a trip to a, to a cemetery in Houston, Texas, where I can pay my respects. When you talk with your family, uh, wh- where is your family now? Your, I mean, your, your, your extended family, your siblings. And- oh, in Ohio and Colorado. My son lives out in Colorado. Are, are any of them military families or no i'm the I'm the only one serving and uh you know you always hear those those statistics that only one percent of them serve yeah. or or everything else like that you know 
I think if you look throughout our history, you always get those highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, the military grows in wartime uh, yeah, and it shrinks in peacetime. And there's no doubt in my mind that that uh, if there's a threat to our homeland, that the American people will be there. When you talk to your family, so this your family isn't there aren't military families. How how easy is it or hard is it for you to communicate? with them what the army is, what it is you do. You know, people often talk about a kind of divide, right, potentially in, in America, because many people don't know anybody who, who's in the military. There's, you know, military communities tend to tend to support military communities. And it's in many cases becomes a kind of family business almost where fathers serve, sons serve and so on. So when you talk with your family, how do you how do you communicate with them? Well, I, I, I think there's two questions that are inside of there that you just talked about. One is, I don't think that uh, I would have to agree with you that there, there, there is this uh, difficulty in explaining exactly what we do out there. And I think that there's that difficulty because if I were a civilian, uh, I would ask myself, what is it that the military is doing out there? What is, you know, what's... What's the purpose of sure. that is, you know, and I don't think any soldier can answer that. He can, you know, we can uh, talk about our individual roles within the military. But that leads to the second part of the question. And, and the second part of the question is, is, is why is the service uh, becoming such a family run business? And is that something that's good for our country? And, you know, I think it goes back, and again, it goes back to to understanding the evolution of our army, how the burden shifted after World War II in the Vietnam era with the all-volunteer force from the draftee to the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. So we basically, you know, we're, we're outsourcing that responsibility to a generation of folks that are willing to serve. And you have to ask yourself, is that really is what good for the army is it good for our country for that because i i think naturally you're going to have these enclaves to where where the military posts are at mm -hmm. where it's the, the it's more likely that those are the children that'll end up joining the military but i think that there's a bigger question there for our country as a society is is that really good for the country to shift that burden of responsibility uh away from everybody having skin in the game. And uh, I understand that, uh, you know, if you look at during the Nixon administration and how they really debated that issue about the all-volunteer force and how the draft wasn't uh, uh, a representation of all America and how it was more likely that poor people would serve, you can definitely understand why they went to an all-volunteer force. But we're about to go from the shifting of the the burden from draftees to taxpayer to shifting it down to AI now, artificial intelligence. And is that going to change the nature of war when you no longer have the, the will of the people that will decide whether you go or do war or not? And I think that that's very interesting, and it's something that uh, the future generations are going to have to decide. Yeah, that is a huge change in, in how war is fought and what's at stake in conflict um, and potentially really destabilizing also because if a robot is is at risk you, you know we may be more willing to go to war right because people aren't aren't at risk if a robot's doing the fighting so as 
as you end your career, what are you looking forward to afterwards? What are your plans? You know, in a perfect world, I would like to take a little bit of time off for one to reflect, really to reflect on the journey, to uh, to have great gratitude to the people who I've served with, uh, to demonstrate my appreciation of my family for letting, allowing me to do what I do. I wouldn't be able to have did this without my wife and my son supporting me throughout all these years. And it's a sacrifice on families, which is, you know, one thing that the Army and I think America don't realize. You know, I often wonder what sort of uh, free labor they've gotten out of the spouses and the children over the course of the 30 years that I've been there, you know. And uh, they've sacrificed so much for me, and they've sacrificed for the country, and uh, it's affected them. And I, I just really wanted to show my appreciation of them. Uh, to see what they want to do, and I think that that's important to do. Eventually, what I would like to do is, you know, I've learned so much from the Army, and, and uh, I've learned a lot about, you know, it's life short. And uh, if you're not giving something back to society, if you're not trying to help out your fellow man, then what are you doing? And uh, so eventually I would like to work with underprivileged kids, really just help mentoring the next generation. You know, I would often talk to young soldiers when they joined the Army saying, you know, I've been carrying this torch of freedom for 30 years, but I'm not going to give it to you. You're going to have to take it, and you're going to have to earn it. And I want to prepare young people to be able to do that because I believe that every country, no matter how free you are, somebody's still going to have to stand watch on that wall. Well, sir, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time, your insight, and your, your openness. Thanks for joining us in the War Room. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on the War Room Podcast. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.